Last week, the curtain closed on chapter 1. People were leaving this massive Mardi Gras festival in Susa. Red cups scattered everywhere. King Xerxes had won the confidence of all of his generals, convinced his governors to support his war against Greece, put on display his riches and military might, and lost his temper and either killed Queen Vashti or banished her. Just before the curtain closed, we saw Xerxes' angered red face cut Pythias' son in two and march through his split body to battle. Now the curtain opens in chapter 2. In chapter 1, Xerxes was three years into his reign. According to 2.16, it's the seventh year now. Four years have passed, and a lot has taken place behind the curtain. Xerxes assembled the largest army in the history of the world and marched them from Persia into Greece to accomplish what his father never could, conquer the Greeks. One inscription actually reveals he intended to conquer all of Europe as well. And, and when they went in, they went in rolling deep and talking trash. Our arrows will blot out the sun. Then we will fight in the shade. It was a disastrous war for Persia. The Greeks routed Xerxes' army and demolished most of his navy. Two and a half thousand years later, and we're still telling the story of this guy losing. His war chest depleted, his credibility throughout the empire diminished, his title, king of the world, lost. Xerxes eventually boarded a ship, sailed home with his tail between his legs. The defeated, the defeat didn't take away his anger. It, made, it didn't make him rethink his choices. Much like a drunk, abusive husband who receives a beatdown at the bar doesn't come home snuggling his wife. He merely feeds his hunger to express his dominance in a new area. The losing king returns home to face the daunting reminder that his favorite wife is gone. Notice the end of verse 1. He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. The phrase remembered Vashti implies some uneasiness over the whole incident. His anger had cooled and he was having second thoughts about what he did before he went to war. It took this guy four years to recognize his mistake. I'm thinking he woke up one morning listening to country western music and he's got nobody to console him except for Jack Daniels and Jose Cuervo. Most of the time when the, word, when the Hebrew word remembered is used in the Old Testament, it's, it's a compassion word. God says, I will remember my covenant between me and you. God remembered Noah. God remembered Rachel and opened her womb. Xerxes' face softens as he remembers his wife. He misses her. What was he thinking? Now he's lost the war and his favorite wife. You can see the blood pressure rising in his face. His face becomes red again in verse 1. The Hebrew construction of the verse strongly implies that Xerxes is now blaming his seven counselors for persuading him to banish or 
kill the queen. He's not in a good mood. Some scholars believe that Mimukin, the leading noble who initially verbalized the idea of getting rid of Vashti, had a marriageable relative in his own family whom he hoped would win the crown. Regardless, he and his six friends know they're in deep trouble if they don't come up with a solution and fast. Watch these little frat boys in verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel. The Magnificent Seven manipulate Xerxes again by playing to his wounded ego. They pipe up. Let's begin a search for beautiful women, beautiful young virgins for you, king. When you see some of these ladies, king, you'll be saying, Vashti who? Vashti looking nasty compared to these ladies. Your two-year failed invasion, I mean, uh, 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 your, your untimely invasion of Greece has so occupied you that you haven't even found a new queen. Let's hold an international beauty pageant, an open contest in search of the next Miss Persia. King, we could call it The Bachelor. <laughs> the Bachelor, Persia edition. King, hot tubs, fireside chats, walks on the beach. Come on, King. You deserve a break. You deserve this. You deserve a new queen. There's 127 provinces. What if we brought the top 10 ladies from each province? See why I called them frat boys? With 50 million people in the Persian Empire, we could figure that one-third of those are children, one-third of those are men, and one-third of those being women. So let's say 17 million eligible women. The news goes out among the empire and it creates quite a buzz. Thousands of women are standing at their city gates anxiously awaiting the arrival of the king's black limo. CrossFit memberships are going through the roof. Women are swearing off carbs, lying about their age, probably more than any other time in human history. And why not? The prize was the crown and the wealth and the butlers and the maids and the money and the food and the leisure and the clothing. The winner got it all. Historians describe the king's life after his military defeat as one of sensual overindulgence. Xerxes will choose his wife based on her beauty and sexual performance. In the Persian culture, the most important thing about a man was his wealth and power. The most important thing about a woman was her beauty and sexuality. You'll see it in the first two chapters of this book. Men are judged by the size of their wallet in chapter 1. Women are judged by the size of their waist in chapter 2. Not much has changed. Our society still adopts an appearance-driven approach. The external, the surface matters most. Our culture runs on superficialities of what, they can, be, what can be seen. Not on the substance. Not on who people are at the core. This chapter is a good example of the art of the author. The story is quite detailed and suspenseful, but the author interrupts it by giving a flashback in verses seven, 5 through 7. 
He'll go back more than a hundred years in order to introduce key characters that are indispensable as the plot develops. And I guess now is a good a time as any to catch you up on it. There are certain movements in the text. You've already seen the first. The defeated king returns. Second movement, the dominant characters appear. Let me spread a historical table for you. Up until this time, there had been basically three world empires. First, Assyria. Assyria harshly suppressed the peoples they conquered. Many times they would move entire populations from one land to another and then replace them with other conquered peoples. This would be like the United States conquering Canada and Liberia and West Africa, then moving the Canadians to Liberia and moving the Liberians to Canada. The Assyrians were dangerous people. They scattered Israelites all over the known world. They used brutal torture tactics. They would literally skin people alive. You see why Jonah hesitated to preach to the Ninevites, the Assyrians. Assyrians, that was the first world empire. The second is the Babylonians. The Babylonians defeated the Assyrians to gain control. When they gained control, they destroyed Jerusalem and nearly annihilated the people of God. The Babylonians tortured men, abused women, put the young in child labor camps. They burnt the house of God, tore down the walls of Jerusalem. The city lay a barren wasteland, much like the people. They would take the boldest and brightest of the captives and move them to Susa. Those who had an aptitude for languages, those who were strong, those who were bright. They gave them new names as a means of brainwashing them. Daniel was among their number. You may remember that Daniel would not eat the king's meat, nor would he stop praying. He would not conform. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego also refused to assimilate into the pagan culture. They all learned to sing the Lord's song in a strange land. The Persians entered the scene as the third pagan world empire after they defeated the Babylonians. The Persians dealt with their prisoners of war in a different way. They allowed the displaced POWs to return to their homeland and rebuild the temples to their gods. So Canadians would leave Liberia and go back to Canada. The Liberians would leave Canada and go back to Liberia. The Persians believed that if they had happy POWs, they would be loyal POWs. Now, why did I give you that history lesson? The same reason the author does. God's people, the Jews, were allowed to go back to the motherland, go back to God's land, back to Jerusalem. But one man in particular did not. His name, Mordecai. Verse 7. Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. Esther was an orphan. God's timing is just so fitting. This is National Orphan Sunday. Adoption Sunday. Mordecai and Esther are cousins, but he's 15 years older than her. When her parents died in a strange land by strange hands, he adopted her as his own. Mordecai was less like a cousin and more like a father to Esther. Perhaps those were the last words of Esther's father. Nephew, Mordecai, take care of my baby daughter. 
And he did. He changed her diapers. He played Barbie dolls. He watched the movie Frozen. He braided her hair and dressed her in costume so that she could turn around and sing, twirl, let it go, let it go. Later, he had to talk to her about the changes that girls go through when they become women. It was awkward for him. Single dad. As she matured, he spent most of his time driving away interested suitors. The entire book centers around an orphan. The entire book centers around an adoption. Now, in the midst of three world empires jockeying for position, and a fourth one coming on really strong, Greece, why is the author drawing us to a seemingly insignificant adoption story? What if the great events aren't the ones on the news? What if what we hear every day is just the backdrop? What if this coming presidential election or our current wars are merely a little backdrop for what's going to happen in a little building called Faith Family Church where some people will gather tonight at 5 o'clock for No More Orphans Night. In the Old Testament, there's really no international adoptions. Most of the adoptions were within extended family, like we have here with Esther. What type of home did Mordecai provide for this orphan? Were they observing the Jewish feast? Were they honoring the clean and unclean foods laid out by God? Were they weekly under the exposition of the Old Testament law? Was Mordecai reading scripture to Esther every night? Was he telling her how important it is to marry a believing Jew and, and not an uncircumcised heathen? Was he praying with her? The answer to all those questions is no. As a second and third generation exile, Mordecai would have known nothing other than the than life in the Persian Empire, and he liked it. Esther grew up in a Persianized home, disobeying the Old Testament by eating pork belly and pork loin and, my favorite, pork chops. They were engaged in pagan Persian celebrations. They lived very secular lifestyles, adopting the dress, customs, and practices of their Gentile neighbors. Neither Mordecai or Esther at this point in the story are walking with God. No one's praying. No one mentions God. No one's worshiping God. No one's tithing to God. No one is celebrating the feasts and festivals. No one's offering a sacrifice for sin. There's nothing. They are spiritually lethargic Jewish exiles living in Susa. And they don't seem to have the, the zeal for holiness that Daniel had. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's no courageous defiance where they say, we will obey God no matter what the cost. In fact, they keep secret that they're even Jews. Mordecai doesn't want the people around him to know that he is God's people. By all appearances, they have accommodated and assimilated well into the host culture in which they inhabit. They've settled down. 
They've built a home. He works in one of the king's businesses. They have indoor plumbing, shopping malls, so many conveniences. They are choosing not to go back to God's land. They each have two names which hint to the identity crisis going on in their lives. Hadassah was the Jewish name and Esther was the pagan name. Mordecai has a Jewish name not given in the scriptures, but we know this because Mordecai is a pagan name named after a pagan god. Actually, both of them were named after pagan gods. Even immigrants into the United States will sometimes take an Anglicized form of their given name. And that's what we have here. We have someone joining the church next week uh, from Nigeria, Yinka. That's not a real name. That's an Anglicized name. And Daniel's situation was a little opposite. Daniel was given a pagan name. But so were Azariah, Mishael, and, and Hananiah. But you may be more familiar with their pagan names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Morgan and Esther, uh, Mordecai and Esther were, were not a model for living in a strange land like Daniel. Are they even believers? Are they believers living in rebellion? Are they not yet followers of Yahweh? In our day, we would call these cultural Christians. These are the kind of people who do believe in God. But they don't have a personal relationship with Him. The story gets worse. Mordecai gets wind of the contest. He hears the, the gossip on the lips of a passerby. He sees the procession in the streets. and It's here in the construction of the Hebrew text that it seems he encourages Esther to enter the pageant. Esther, you could be queen, the highest woman of the land. We would never have another money problem. I know you wanted to get married in your parents' little village, but you should let it go. Let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. Their opinions don't bother me anyway. This isn't good advice. I heard a pastor preach this uh, two weeks ago. And he said, God may send people to give you uncanny advice. And I said, uh, no, not the point of the text, no proper, proper application. This isn't how a dad is to view his daughter. I have a daughter. I don't want my daughter to enter something like this. Even when I go to her little private school and I see these little boys in uniform in her class, and she walks in and they say, hi, Everly. In my mind, those, those boys are terrorists <laughs> holding a grenade and the pen is pulled. That's all I see. You better get away from my daughter. There's no divine counsel for Mordecai to behave as he did. He has no excuse. He should have hidden away his daughter. We see the defeated king returns. The dominant characters appear. And thirdly, the disgusting contest begins. Notice verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace. Josephus said there were 400 virgins in the competition. Josephus is not in the scriptures, but he's a reliable historian. 
Patton estimated that there was 1,460 virgins. That's a lot of women. But it, it wasn't in compared to the 17 million options. Those who were left behind were the disappointed ones. What do you mean I'm not pretty enough for the king? Why was Esther chosen to be among one of the 400? Well, that's easy. Go back to verse 7. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. As far as I know, this is the only woman in the Bible where it's said of her, she has a great body. It's alluring. It's attractive. According to J-Max, she's probably in her mid-twenties. Good looks open doors. You can't deny that. Good doors and bad doors. Her looks opened a door to the harem. The harem was a name for the ladies who were in the competition. The palace is swimming with beautiful women. Esther wasn't the only girl turning heads. She's one of many beautiful women. And the author in the story is stacking the odds against Esther. She's never going to be chosen. That's why verse 9 is a significant reversal. And the young woman Esther pleased Haggai and won his favor. Esther quickly learned not only how to survive, but how to thrive in her new situation. She received more of everything than the other ladies. She had the best room, the best makeup, the best food. I'm talking cheeseburgers and nachos and buffalo wild wings. She had seven personal maids. Verse 11 annoys me a bit. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So Mordecai lets Esther go to the Persian bachelor auditions. And now he's worried about her? Every day he checks on her? He's biting his nails. He's on pins and needles. He's probably thinking to himself, what have I done? She's in there with 400 plus contestants. She's naive. She'll never keep our secret about our heritage. She doesn't stand a chance. I have got to do something to make sure this works out in her favor. While he paces anxiously around the building, he has no clue that Esther is actually being pampered inside. We know that Esther is privileged among the harem, but what did the other ladies experience? Verse 12b says this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. For 12 months, they were lotioned and perfumed. 365 days, and every day, spa day. Their beauty regimen consisted of spices and fragrant oils, perfumes, and various cosmetics. Beautifying paste over several months would remove spots and blemishes. The oil of myrrh was used to soften and lighten the skin. Since most of these women worked outdoors, their skin had been darkened and calloused by the sun. To the Persians, fair skin was a sign of beauty. So it would take around 12 months of massage therapy and lack of sunlight to soften and lighten the complexion of these women. 12 months. Sarah and I, we, we try to do date nights at least once a, month, once a month, but we're hitting about six times a year at the moment. We're going to try to do better. I know you guys email me about that. 
I'm trying to do better. Uh, I've, I've waited for Sarah in the car to finish her makeup, but I've, I've never waited for 12 months. One year to get ready for one night. Their makeup. I'm not saying your makeup. Their makeup was connected to their pagan worship. The priests in this region were the ones who developed and protected the science of cosmetics because they saw the physical as merely a gateway to the spiritual. Women bathed in pools of spices since smell was connected to divine acceptance. They wore makeup around their eyes and bracelets around their arms and neck and feet to ward off evil spirits. They were given blush for their cheeks, all shades of lipstick and eyeliner and fingernail polish because beauty brought them closer to the gods. And in just a matter of a few months, they would be led before a descendant of the gods, the king. The food they were given was intended to enhance their beauty, perhaps fattening up these scrawny commoners. The modern Western cult of thin is beautiful would have undoubtedly been regarded as a, bizarre, as a bizarre preference to the ancient world, as it still is in most parts of the world today. Along with this beautification process, the women were also being schooled in court customs and royal etiquette. Stephen Davy says they were learning what to say and how to say it. These women had come from the fields, and many of them were unschooled, illiterate, and untrained, but they were beautiful. And in 12 months, one of them would sit on the throne as queen. This 12-month process was a crash course on how to look like a queen, sound like a queen, eat like a queen, smell like a queen, and act like a queen. Verse 13, when the young women went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Apparently, each woman had a certain liberty in choosing her adornment and jewelry, but also choosing aphrodisiac potions and other such items to enhance pleasure. Each woman has a one-night audition. Each night, one woman would appear before the king, answer some questions, and... Then the king would try her out. This would happen night after night until all the, auditions, all the auditions were finished. After it was all over, the king would pick his favorite. He treated women like engaged couples treat sample wedding cakes. Remember that? There was 40 cakes here and you just start sampling and, okay, tried that one, move it to the sample table. And that one's good. Let's move it to the sample table. Let's move it to the sample table. See, all of that makes verse 14 make perfect sense. In the evening, she would come in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shahazgaz. This is the first time we're introduced to Tupac Shahazgaz, distant relative of Tupac Shakur. Uh, he's an ancient Persian rapper. Maybe you've heard of him. But this is the guy who watches over the sampled women. And all the women, whether there was 400 or 1,400, fell into one of four categories. First, most of these women will never get past a one-night stand with the king. If the king didn't like them, he sent them back to be permanent concubines. 
and he would never call for them again. They can't go home. They, they can't marry because they belong to the king. They will live forgotten lives sequestered away in the palace of Susa. Those who didn't receive a rose lived in luxurious desolation. Secondly, if, if the king liked them, he would call on them every once in a while. Like a, like a little collection of living dolls, he would sometimes take them out and play with them. Thirdly, if you were really lucky, you would be one of the two or three who were actually his wives, his heirs. And finally, the most favored became the queen. She held the rose. The king has just finished number 369. Esther holds number 370. Tonight is her night. And then we arrive at the fourth movement in the text. The determined queen is crowned. Notice verse 15. When the turn came for Esther to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuchs, who had charge of the women, advised. Some of these ladies decked themselves with many jewels. Esther was content to stay with the advice of Haggai. Exactly what she took is unknown. We know according to verse 16, it's midwinter. It's very cold out. It's, it's the rainy season. As she puts the final touches on her makeup, she stands back to give one last glance at the mirror. Her mind is filled with the secrets given to her by the chief eunuch, Haggai, who wants to see her win the crown. How did the audition go? Verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Xerxes was totally smitten by her. She not only won the bed, she won the heart. Four years later, we have a new queen. Esther is now Miss Persia. But is that anything to be excited about? Was it worth her virginity? Was it worth her integrity? Esther is the compliant child of the empire, the ultimate anti-Vashti. You want me to wear only a crown? I'll wear only a crown. My name isn't Vashti. When speakers teach this passage and make Mordecai and Esther the heroes of the story, I think it's a big mistake. There's nothing here to emulate. There's nothing here to model. They didn't live out the gospel. Daniel instructs us on how to sing the Lord's song in a strange land, but they show us how to sing a pagan song in a strange land. Have you ever heard the old hymn? I think it's a kid's song too, Dare to Be a Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. What would you sing about Esther? Dare to be an Esther, dare to please the king, dare to keep your figure firm and one day you'll be a queen. If these are heroes, they are heroes of questionable morality. Other expositors attempt to turn the story into a romance. 
I mean, it has all the trappings of a good fairy tale. There's a beautiful maiden, a lonely king, a kingdom-wide pageant, a stunning palace. It's like a Cinderella story. There's even a movie entitled One Night with the King, where Esther is basically quoting scripture and writing women's Bible study curriculum and blogging about love. Esther impresses everyone with her winning smile. What an example Esther is for little girls everywhere. As much as pastors would like to pretty up the book, it's impossible to. This is nothing less than a sordid meat market. Even the 107 verses that were added to the story later in history are obvious attempts to sanctify the actions of Esther and Mordecai and keep them in heroic form. The second scene closes much like the first scene closed, with a banquet. It's actually the fourth banquet in the book. Notice, let's visit the banquet in verse 18. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. The phrase remission of taxes in the Hebrew a good translation would be a causing to rest. It's best understood in the original language as a holiday. Xerxes proclaimed a holiday for all the provinces and handed out gifts with royal generosity. When King Xerxes was happy, everyone was happy. It was a trickle-down effect. What do we do with this story? Seems like... A lot of sin and a lot of mess. We pull two applications from it. Application number one. The providence of God in your story is unstoppable. Some of you can view your life and you realize that all the decisions you've made were not good ones. Let's just have a testimony moment here. How many of you would say, all the decisions I've made in my life are not good ones? Would you raise your hand? Bless you, rest of you, you're liars. <laughs> Some of you are Mordecai's. You've compromised your beliefs so that you could climb the corporate ladder. You keep your relationship with God hidden so that you could get along with the Persians at work. Some of you are like Esther. Like, yeah, I've, I've broken some commandments. I've slept with somebody or somebody's. I've hidden my Christian faith. I've kept a foot in each world. I've lived a life that is compromised and inconsistent. But I've repented of all of that. But it's too late. I've done the damage. Here's what you need to know. God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. God can use unholy decisions for his holy purpose. Esther's story shows that we can entrust our sinful decisions to the Lord and move on. Some of you are thinking and have verbalized that it's impossible for God to work his plan in your life because you've messed up so badly. Here's what you have to understand. The plan of man is almost always sinful. And the providence of God is always sovereign. The plan of man is almost 
always sinful. The providence of God is always sovereign. Application number two. The providence of God in your life is crooked and strange. I just showed you that God can use unholy decisions for his holy purpose. Now I want to show you that God can use unholy people for his holy purpose. Can we all agree that Xerxes was a bad guy? An awful guy. Xerxes was a Xerxes. And I want to be careful not to read into the text what is not there and fail to read out of the text what is there. I was purposefully flippant with some of the story. There's another view of this story held by a lot of scholars. And that's that Esther had no choice in the matter. She did not fill out an application to enter the pageant. Her and the other women were snatched out of their ordinary life to be playthings for the king. They were herded with rifle butts to ensure the compliance of the chosen. One of my mentors, mentors from a distance, Tim Keller, holds this view. And he does it because of the phrase in verse 8, Esther was taken. In this view, Esther was basically kidnapped. She was abducted. It's a dark and uncomfortable tale of human trafficking. It's a story you hear on the late night news and and you can't get back to sleep because of the details. Christine Kaufman speculated that Esther could have been around 14 years of age when she married this 40-year-old tyrant who just axed his previous wife. If this is the case, Xerxes was a pedophile. One thinks, for example, of Amanda Berry, Gina and Michelle Knight, who were rescued after a 10-year abduction in Cleveland, Ohio. Now, I do not hold to that view. It's not because I don't think Xerxes was above it. He was a horrible man. He was a tyrant. I don't hold to that view because of Hebrew grammar. Scholars have pointed out that the phrase was taken in verse 8 is overinterpreted, is overinterpreting the passive voice. It's used to express Xerxes' initiative and, and not the women. But you can disagree with me. Whichever interpretation you hold, the application stands the test. If you hold to my view, God did not make Mordecai and Esther sin if they sinned. The other view, God did not make Xerxes sin if he trafficked. God doesn't make laws and then have his hand in breaking those laws. But God in his providence permits men's sin. One scholar said it like this, God does not infuse evil into man. He withdraws the influence of his graces and then his heart hardens of itself. In other words, God is not the author of sin. He is the avenger of sin. If you hold to Tim Keller's view, God did not traffic Esther. Xerxes did that. But God can bring beauty out of ashes. If you hold to Kyle's view, God didn't tell Mordecai to send Esther into the tyrant's bed. But God can bring beauty out of ashes. Thomas Watson was a Puritan, lived in the 1600s. He said, suppose you were in a blacksmith shop and you should see there are several sorts of tools. 
Some crooked, some bowed, others hooked. Would you condemn all of these things because they do not look handsome? The smith makes use of them all for doing his work. Thus it is with the providences of God. They seem to us to be very crooked and strange. Yet they all carry on God's work. As the curtain closes on scene two, we are left with the question, what is the master blacksmith forging in his shop? How could he be working to avenge sin through all of this sin? The answer? You'll have to find out next week as the curtain opens, scene number three. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.